0: Data Driven Podcast and I Hear Everything Production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data driven decision making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast
1: where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing data skills, the Data Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. I'm your host and the co-founder of Story IQ, Dominic Bohan. Today, we're gonna hear about AI's limitations and challenges in business applications. Joining us is Cameron Turner, who's the VP of Data Science at Kin & Carter, which is a global digital transformation consultancy. Cameron developed Octane, a socially responsible AI data platform, offering advanced insights, predictions, and recommendations to clients. Following its success, Kin and Carter acquired Octane as part of their sustainable digital transformation offering last January. And today, Cameron and I are going to discuss why ChatGPT can't solve business problems. Here's my conversation with Cameron Turner, the VP of Data Science at Kin and Carter. Cameron, thanks for joining us on the Data Driven Podcast today. So can we kick things off with a little bit of background about your journey in the field of data science and what you've been doing at Kin and Carter?
0: Yeah, you bet. Well, personally, I started out inbound market research, so really focusing on bringing the voice of the customer into software development projects, and then got really excited about what we could do with data that was generated from software, telemetry, and started a company around that called Clickstream Technologies, which was later acquired by Microsoft and then built into Microsoft Windows for their inbound market research. But one of the things that's been kind of a common thread for me throughout is having some business objective, some goal in mind before you sort of dig into the data, because, you know, data geeks love to dig around and find things, but you can go into fishing expeditions that will take you to faraway lands that don't actually result in outcomes for the business. So that's something that I've really enjoyed is seeing measurable impact on the backside of any data project. Okay, that's something that
1: comes up a lot on this podcast. So diving straight into the technical stuff without a solid understanding of the business problem. That kind of brings us to our topic for today, why ChatGPT can't solve business problems. So can we expand on why it can't, why humans often fail, and what are the best practices? How can we be effective at tackling the right problems when we do things
0: like data science? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's, let's unpack it a little bit. There's an assumption built in, which is that ChatGPT can't solve the business problems, which I think in some cases it can. You know, your listener base is a mixture of, you know, people who are, you know, deep in the technology as well as the C suite executives who are making decisions for the business and rely on their data systems in order to support those decisions. And I think one of the exciting things about ChatGPT and OpenAI is that it provided this little pinhole into the world of large language models and what could be done. By training massive prediction systems that could consume vast amounts of both structured and unstructured data in order to provide an answer, there's some you know disappointment I'll call it in the market right now around um, you know the the accuracy and validity of, of what comes out, hallucinations and so forth. But as long as we all remember that you know these systems, ChatGPT specifically, but large language models more generally, are a prediction of the best answer, not an oracle solution or an oracle answer to to the question that it's asked then I think we're on the right track and it can do some amazing things. You know, specifically in terms of business problems that it does do well at. Chat is, of course, something that everyone became familiar with and, and became, you know, sort of a cultural phenomenon this year in terms of, you know, what AI is and what AI could be. And also, you know, sort of this this idea of passing the Turing test and becoming woke and, you know, that AI kind of woke up and, you know, th- those kinds of things. But actually, one of the places we're finding a lot of value with ChatGPT GPT is generating structured data, generating synthesized data, generating product descriptions, things like that. We're finding a lot of major brands that we work with are using it for these very focused types of, of opportunities. Going back to the question, though, why can't it solve you know, all business problems, if I can modify it that way, is that it's not the solution to every problem, nor is AI, nor machine learning. You know, sometimes people will come with, hey, we just need a bot that we can ask any question of our data and it will give us the answer, kind of like you know Wizard of Oz. And really, you know, the, the answer is what you're asking for is actually a dashboard. Like we can build you a great analytics dashboard that will solve that and give you absolute facts, you know, about the history of what's happened in your manufacturing floor or in your HVAC system or in your ordering system, which is a different solution than, than AI altogether. But actually, it just gives us one more tool in the toolbox to do, to do things with and access to a lot more data than we had before with a lot less engineering in order to access it. So is it fair to say AI can solve some
1: business problems, but perhaps narrow business problems? Yeah. Right? Like
0: we want it to do something very specific, very well articulated. I think that's right. The more specific you can be in your question, the better. I mean, that would sort of be, you know, to oversimplify, that would be a sort of a supervised learning state where you have some data and you have some answers and you want to make a model that can provide answers to new data. Uh, But there's also sort of the discovery process, unsupervised learning, where you don't know, you know, hey, what are the different clusters of my website users? And you want to just kind of build that based on the data that you know about them. So there is, you know, exploration to be done. One of the other trends that we see, you know, we work mostly with Fortune 500, Global 1000 type clients. One of the things I'll say is, is always true, is that regardless of the technical skill of the client that we're speaking with, there's always fantastic intuition about the potential. Because if you know what's in your data and you have questions, you can draw the line directly between those facts that sit in your data set you know, and the question that you have. You may not know, you know how to build that bridge, and that's where we can help out, but the instinct is is there. So I think what you said is right. If you go in with you know, a, a well-formed hypothesis or a well-formed question, you're much more likely to have measurable results. Can you tell us
1: about some of the problems you encounter at Kin and Carter where AI would be totally out of it? steps. And we still need a human or many humans thinking critically about a problem. Yeah,
0: well, I think in every situation, there's humans, of course, AI itself is a human based endeavor, we're working on labeled data set that was labeled somewhere. And this comes up in a lot of ethical, you know, conversation and, you know, data ethics salons and things like that, where people are talking about, you know, what is actually the ethics of, you know, having people sort through imagery and find you know things that are distasteful because there's some psychological effects of having that job so you know the predicate is that AI is already a fully human endeavor it's just scaled you know through through technology but the most common sort of folly I would say um, is that there's a belief that if we can build this thing then you know people will use it the field of dreams concept if I've just had that that you know fill in the blank dashboard, you know chat gpt model that's augmented with my data or you know the perfect you know sort of sort of analytics tool that everyone would see that that's a better way of, of doing business and everyone would come the reality is that data driven culture isn't born overnight and it's certainly not driven by new tooling new tooling represents a problem for people because it's you know it requires training and it requires changing your processes and your workflows and it takes power from some people and may you know radically change the jobs of people and so Those are all problems for an organization. Um, And so even if, you know, sort of the executive view might be, you know, we're going to go through digital transformation and voila, on the other side, we now have this smooth running business where we're always optimized. The reality on the ground is that most of the time it will require some cultural transformation. And sometimes that cultural transformation is a prerequisite to actually going down the path so that there are cases where, you know, in my consulting career, I've had conversations to say, we would love to build this for you, but do these three things first. (laughs) You know, think about having strong data governance. Think about having, you know, some, you know, not policy, but at least processes around reporting and people understanding what the key performance indicators are for the organization so that you start that wheel turning of, wow, we can do better with data. And that's really the goal. Are you able to share some stories of projects you've worked on where perhaps
1: you did advise the client, hey, we need to start with, building the right culture, data governance, as opposed to jumping in, building models, using AI. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I'll give you one uh, story that's sort of a a parallel path story, because we were kind of doing both at the same time. But a lot of companies, including this company, which is a major food distributor and one of the biggest in, in the US, and they have a whole bunch of different brands that have come together under this one mega brand. And Doing that, they also created a core uh, analytics team. And this is not uncommon in large organizations. My experience at Microsoft, you know, running the inbound data systems for the telemetry group, we were seated inside of Windows, but we serviced you know, all 39 products across Microsoft, as well as 1,300 partners, giving them their crash data, their hang data, the blue screen of death, the Watson data, the usage data, all that came through you know, one pipe. So similarly with this client, there was uh, an initiative to sort of centralize, create a single source of truth, create a a core centralized data repository that was known to be of high quality and current, and then optimize also on the spend. Because another thing that was happening here is people were buying the same data in different brands, which of course isn't very efficient. And so what the, the challenge was is to really, you know, become an internal centralized service organization, a cost center, but something that could actually generate value for each of these different groups. They didn't have to go out and build, their own data platform, their own data warehouse, data lake, et cetera, because that was all centralized. And in doing so, um, you know, there there were challenges because, you know, what is a skew when you have 13, you know, different brands? What is a geography when every brand came in with their own definition? So that reconciliation and harmonization of these different data sources to get to the point where you can answer even basic questions like how many customers do we have today You know, those become really hard questions when you start to look at it through the lens of the data architecture. How do you blend these things together?
1: Okay. So this client you worked with that had multiple disparate brands that were doing their own thing with data, very interesting that they were sometimes buying and paying for the same data. And so your job was to come in and help them consolidate under one single unit that can consolidate all the data and provide access to data
0: and presumably reporting to all these different lines of business? That's right. I think you can almost think of it as a stacked cake, where the fundamental piece is just how do you harmonize to answer those basic questions, like you know, how many customers there are, get things put in the same place with the same definition, you know, with a clear data definition, you know, data dictionary, you've got a good data catalog that enables people to browse and pull data. But if you think of it as stacks, people want raw data. They'll always want raw data. But if you can provide service on top of that as one of those centralized groups. Where now you've provided aggregation, for example, or integrated data sets that combine these concepts and create a new data source that's, you know, more simple to consume, you know, for, for other activities. Then you can think about what you said, reporting and analytics is kind of a layer on top of that, where now, you know, I have an ability. I don't have to go create my own dashboard. I just basically pull a, you know, pull something from a dropdown and I get you know, my brand versus all the brands. And now I'm looking at data that's really germane to the decision-making that I'm doing. And then above that, you know, AI products, data, you know, products that actually will generate, you know, prediction, recommendation, explanation of data and providing those. So, you know, the, I think the key thing is that people will want to plug in at, you know, some or all of those different levels in supporting the business. And again, I you know, go back to what I said in the beginning, the business always knows best. You know, they're, they're on, they know what's going on, they know their customer, they're informed by data in order to do better versus having AI come and sort of do the job of, of knowing customer, knowing product, knowing market.
1: So we need to rely on their expertise and in a project like this, so we've got these multiple layers. So it sounds like the first is data foundations, getting the right data in the right place. Uh, Then we've got some aggregation, then potentially reporting, and only then bringing in some predictive modeling and potentially AI tools. So on this final layer, can you tell us how you've worked with clients to get the most of AI? So harness that human knowledge that you talked about, the domain expertise of people in the business, and how do we combine that with a tool like ChatGPT
0: to get the most value from our data? Yeah, it's a great question and I think one thing is sort of breaking down the chronology because people will come with both approaches. You know, there there will be an initiative, you know, for especially for, you know, a large enterprise to build that data foundation and then sort of go go down that path that you described. Sometimes, you know, what's needed in order to kickstart that initiative though is really understanding the potential value. And so there are cases where you know, we've done pilots or POCs with an AI data product. Sorry, what's a POC? Oh, sorry, proof of concept. Proof of concept, right. Yeah, or it'd actually be better described as a proof of value. To know that there's a there there, that the data really has, you know, enough, you know, low enough latency and high enough quality that it's going to create something that's of value to the business. So there are cases where we've built AI models, even from, you know, comma-separated value files that are exported from some, you know, operational system, just to show... Hey, actually, we can do a prediction. We can quantify that we're going to get 90% accuracy on this if we institutionalize this and productionalize it and then work backward through the stack down into data foundations. You know, at the end of the day, like those, the foundation pieces though, you know, they will expire. The the quality will expire over time. The models will drift and start producing, you know, less accuracy, whether that's a machine learning model or, you know, chat GPT. You know, I don't know if, if uh, your listeners have tried this, but if you go to, to ChatGPT and you ask it about you know yesterday's sports score, it doesn't know because the large language model you know has a timestamp and it, and it can't know beyond that. And so those are the kinds of issues that solid data foundations can solve for understanding the scenarios and the and the use cases and making sure that the throttles you know all the levers are set at the right level in terms of you know how recent do you want your data what's acceptable quality, what's acceptable accuracy before you can make a prediction, and then hopefully some level of model explanation, really understanding what's going on, both inside your data as well as inside the model.
1: Uh, Yes. Now, you talked about model drift and problems arising over time. So we get our data foundations right. What about maintenance of those data foundations? What level of work is required to out data foundations
0: remain solid. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a bunch of great technical answers to that around data quality. We could talk about that, but I want to talk for a moment about something that I hear you talk a lot about on your podcast, which is storytelling and fundamentally, you know, humans are humans and we live on anecdotes, you know, since the times when we sat around the fire telling hunting stories or whatever. So people love stories and stories can either, you know, garner or reduce trust. And if there's a belief that the story is not true, <laughs> that the, you know, that the giant buffalo is not as big as the, is being told at the fireside story, then the, the person who's telling that, you know, loses trust. And the next thing they say, won't, you know, won't have as much value, w- as much value will not be assigned to them. Um, so trust is really a key thing in storytelling. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what we need is our systems that can be continually trusted to be giving quality answers. And sometimes, you know, saying it's 86% accurate is not enough. You know, we work in healthcare a lot. We've worked in diagnoses, we've worked in protocol in emergency medicine and trying to identify, you know, best uh, interventions based on the data at hand. You can't really be wrong in those situations. It's kind of like self-driving cars. You see a Tesla smashed up and everyone says, you know, self-driving cars don't work when actually, you know, they're whatever, 10 times safer than a human driver, whatever the number is. So I think the storytelling is really critical when you think about quality and drift and making sure that you're tuned in on answering the right question and also allowing AI systems to say, I don't know, just like humans can say that. And I think that's where we have to sort of reset expectations for AI, that it can be good in some domains without a lot of subjectivity or without a lot of missing information, but in other areas where, especially areas where you're trying to predict human behavior, and this gets into you know retail and consumer scenarios, you know it will be wrong sometimes. And that has to be okay in the same way that it's okay that, that humans make mistakes. Can you tell us a bit more about the storytelling aspect and how you use it?
1: So it was interesting you mentioned, let's say a, a model's 86% accurate. That's not going to resonate with a lot of people, right? A lot of non-technical people, you can say it's 99% accurate and without a story, they're going to say, hey, it's just some model with some numbers that I don't really understand. So can you give us an example of some powerful stories you've been able to tell, especially to influence people that aren't technical experts that might not be comfortable with these models?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, you know, in storytelling, there's, you know, there's the, the elements. I have a, a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old who are, you know, doing a lot of creative writing and writing at schools. And, you know, they're going through right now, you, know, you introduce the characters, you develop them, and then you introduce a conflict and you kind of go through. And I think some of that is, you know, carries through into data storytelling, too. Really having the nouns and verbs be something that people understand well. What is customer? What is product? What is a sale? Are we talking sell-in or sell-through? And so forth, you know, and then building from there so that you're carrying, you know, your audience along the way from the beginning. And then you can change and build on that story over time. To give you an example, we work with a large coffee company, coffee retail company. And one of the things we built for them was a fraud scoring system. The model itself, you know, the accuracy was in the 80s, like this example that we're talking about. But one of the things that is a nice element of uh, of you know, this particular kind of supervised model is it'll give you a probability of it being of the class. So we were looking at fraud, trying to understand if there was or was not fraud for a given employee on a given, given day. And you know, you'll get zeros and ones. And, and you know, overall, it was about 86% accurate, you know, or actually about 84 in that, in that example. But for every individual, it gave you the probability of it being a one. What that lets you do, and you can apply this to marketing too, if you want to talk about you know, lead conversion or, or a sale, or you know, we've done you know, test drive prediction for car manufacturers and retailers, you get a probability. And what you can do with that is take millions of, of rows of data and just sort it by that probability. And once you've done that, you've now created a way to access your business in, in priority order. You can look at the people who are most likely to have committed fraud on that day. You can look at the customers who are most likely to convert today, people who are most likely to respond to a marketing call to action and focus your energy and resources on those on those groups. And that has a big effect on the efficiency of the organization because if you can capture you know, 90% of those converters by only looking you know, at the top 20% of your ranked list, you've done something fantastic for the business with a model that was never perfect to begin with. So that's kind of, you know, I think the the exciting thing about AI today, and especially the level of automation that we have is that we're going beyond trying to create generalizations about the business, generalizations about the market. We can now look right down at the specific row, whether that's a customer or a product or an employee, and we can look at information and prediction and recommendation for that individual customer. And that's really, you know, uprooting everything we've thought about in in customer segmentations and you know, broadcast marketing and so forth to date. So you're finding that this customer by
1: customer or transaction by transaction analysis is going beyond fraud. You mentioned predicting the probability of closing a sale or converting a customer. Are you seeing more and more businesses are able to adopt these more precise
0: models and use them in their day-to-day operations? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we are seeing it. And I think it's, these kinds of models are fantastic because they have a measurable output. You can run an A-B test and you can see the influence that the extra information of a prediction or recommendation has, you know, overall on the business for sure. So drilling into the fraud issue. So let's say we've got a model
1: that predicts the probability between zero and one that, uh, let's say, an employee committed fraud that day, or that a customer, that a particular transaction is fraudulent, is deciding then what to do with that information an example of a problem that ChatGPT might struggle to solve. Is this an example of where we need
0: to bring in that human domain expertise? Absolutely. And I think you're touching on something that's really critical, is this is the point where you cross over into subjectivity and ethical concerns. And what I mean by that is, if you were to take a, you know, let's look at loan applications. This is a common one that's talked about in the community, whether or not to approve a loan application and you train it on historical data of what's, you know, what people's payback looked look like, whether they you know, completed their loan or, or not, was it a profitable deal for the bank or not? And you feed into that everything that was on that loan application, you're bound to hit ethical issues in that approach. You can't, you can't avoid it. And that's, I think one, one thing that, you know, where you have to bring the human mind back into the play. And remember that no AI system understands the meaning behind the headers that are on your columns. They won't understand that zip code is actually associated with socioeconomic you know, factors, things like that. Is that true though? I mean, perhaps not
1: a genuine understanding, but a model like GPT-4 could potentially draw on its corpus to make that inference without explicitly telling it that uh, zip code is a proxy for income.
0: Yeah, potentially, but it won't do that drill down that you're describing in order to really understand. You could ask it, Mm. you know, what are the socioeconomic, you know, factors in, you know, 94301 where I live, it'll tell you the answer to that. It can go into county records and so forth. And we're so thankful now, all this sidebar here, we're so thankful, like all this historical data the government has captured, census, the counties, uh, we use agriculture, we're very deep in, in ag and all the reporting requirements, for example, with pesticides and and sprays, like all of that is uh, public record, which now we can access and, and build models against. But it really has to be sort of tuned in that in that direction from a, a storytelling standpoint. Going back to that point, I think the bigger challenges we get into, and this is kind of true of the example, you know, I mentioned with loan approval, is a different. And it's the same thing as always: it's correlation and causation. If you see something that says oh uh you know loan uh, repayment rates are higher you know with this zip code we should go off and you know really pursue that zip code that leap is causation and that's one that is really important from an organizational development standpoint to get right that people are questioning the causal effect of something versus the correlation of of that data point and Everyone who took stats in college or high school will remember, remember that point being drilled into your head, but it, it, it comes up and sneaks back into things in, in weird ways. We love to try to explain why when we look at charts, and it, not even AI, just looking at a bar chart in Excel, we love to try to explain exactly why. Oh, that's because we did that promotion on that date. But that's a correlation that has to be you know proven to be a, a causal effect. And there's ways to do that, but it's not something that can be done purely by inference. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data
1: Driven Podcast. Thanks to Cameron Turner, VP of Data Science at Kin and Carter for joining us. In part two of this interview, which will publish tomorrow, Cameron and I are going to discuss the challenges of creating an AI data platform. If you can't wait to our next episode and would like to learn more about Cameron, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can also contact him on Twitter, where his handle is at cturner50 or his company website, kinandcarter.com Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com. We've got summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. If you want to share your most compelling use cases for data with our audience, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always contact me directly on LinkedIn. My name is Dominic Bohan. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. Remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more.